Once upon a time, you believed you could change the world. At Dressember, we're here to tell you that you still can. For the last 10 years, advocates have joined together each December to speak up about the issue of human trafficking and raise money for prevention, intervention, and survivor empowerment efforts, all while wearing a dress or a tie. Do you want to be part of a community that's changing the world? Sign up for this year's December Style Challenge. We have all the resources you need to be an active part of a community working for the dignity of all people. Become an advocate today at dressember.org slash fundraise. Hello and welcome to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a December podcast. I'm your host, Blythe Hill, and my co-host is Stephanie Schindler. In this series, we'll be talking with 11 survivors of human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation to find out what survivors wish the rest of us knew about these issues. In this particular episode, we are so grateful to be speaking with Jessa Crisp. Jessa is a teacher, mentor, writer, and co-founder of Bridge Hope. She speaks with boldness and a hope for survivors of trafficking and their advocates. This episode does contain some heavy material about familial trafficking and child trafficking, so we want to ask you to take care of yourself when deciding whether to listen. In keeping with Jessa's usual MO, the heaviness of our conversation is balanced with a lot of hope. Jessa has incredible tips about what survivors need to avoid re-entering a trafficking situation, what it means to be trauma-informed, and a hopeful message for anyone who has experienced trauma in their lives. Let's listen. Okay, Jessa, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. It's a true honor and delight. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about today, and I want to make sure that our listeners are as informed and equipped for this conversation as possible so that way uh, we can all get the most out of learning from you. So to set the foundation for our conversation, um, I was hoping you could define familial trafficking and share a bit about why and how this happens. Yeah. So familial trafficking, the way that I conceptualize it and define it is the exploitation, and that can be through sex or labor, of a victim at the hands of a person who is related to the victim. So that could be a parent. It could be a step parent. It could be a sibling. It could be an uncle. It could be an aunt. It could be a grandparent. And so being able to really see that familial trafficking has that familial connection. And so trafficking happens, as we know, to individuals all around the globe. And familial trafficking is one of those types of trafficking that is very prevalent. And I think for a lot of people, familial trafficking is a type of trafficking that is the hardest to kind of conceptualize. How could a family member do that, do such evil to another family member. Yeah. And some of the reasons why, and from my own lived experience, and then also too with the individuals that I've worked with in nonprofit work, and then also too within clinical practice, I can say that some common themes that keep coming up is that 
one reason why individuals sell individuals who are related in that familiar way is because of community or relationship prestige. And so what takes place is within that exchange of that person, whether once again through sex or labor, then it creates a community or it creates a relationship prestige. And so it creates a hierarchy. And that hierarchy is one reason why people sell other people who are family members. Another one is financial benefits. And so this could look um, like a mother who is a single mother who is needing to pay rent and has kiddos and um, has an addiction and might be exchanging a child for sex um, to go ahead and pay rent or to go ahead and get gas money to get diapers. Um, another one is rent and food. And so this um, is something that takes that financial benefit a little bit further and it makes it more um, tangible um, for some individuals to kind of conceptualize. And one of the things I want to notate is that during COVID, we saw a huge increase of individuals being exchanged for sex or labor to go ahead and help with rent. Um, and so that's just um, something that we saw rise during COVID. Um, we also see that some individuals experience familial trafficking um, to meet the demands of a religious community. And I say that with great sadness because religious communities should be safe places for people to practice their spirituality the way that they want to practice it. And instead, what we have seen through the narratives of survivors is that um, there is an element where familial trafficking takes place to meet those demands within that religious community. And then we also see um, that familial trafficking happens whenever there is an item of value wanted. And so I like to say the things that I value are going to be different than the things that you value, Blythe. But yet we have things that we value and we might have things that are the same that we value. And so depending on what item of value somebody has, that could then become a reason why they might traffic a family member, which is very devastating. And it creates so much trauma within its victims. Thank you so much for spelling that out in so many different ways. I agree that this is a really hard one to wrestle with. Um, for that for that first question you stated, like, why would someone do this to someone they supposedly love? They're supposedly meant to protect and be responsible for. I think, once again, this can be really hard for people to conceptualize. And I think with that being said... Oftentimes when we think of individuals who experience trafficking, specifically familial trafficking, we think of individuals within a certain SES status, a social economic status. We often think of individuals who um, come from that single parent or drug addicted um, family member. And yet when we have community or relationship prestige as being that motivation behind the exploitation that takes place, more often than not, those victims come from higher class families. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a place where there actually is status gained within a city, within um, within a community, within um, with like within a county. And so being able to see that this exchangement oftentimes, ends up also to having this sinister kind of like experience to it. And so um, I think I think one of the things that needs to be recognized is that 
traffickers can be all sorts of people and exploitation, Mm -hmm. the vulnerability of poverty isn't the only thing that leads a person to being exploited specifically within familial trafficking. And so that's where we need to continue to expand our worldview and continue to expand the ways that we conceptualize familial trafficking to begin to see that this happens to individuals who look like they come from the best family ever, but we don't know what's taking place behind closed doors. They might look like they're picture perfect, and yet we don't know the secrets that have happened and that continue to happen. Thank you for painting such a full picture of how vast the spectrum is within familial trafficking. Um, I am going to echo what you said about how traffickers can look like so many different people they are not um they are not a monolith in the same way that survivors of trafficking can look so different um with their vulnerabilities or their lived experiences um or the the ways that they identify um and in this case could you share with us what unique challenges that victims and survivors of familial trafficking experience while they're pursuing recovery? Yeah, I, th- I think when we talk about unique challenges, I think we need to look at the ways that the trauma of trafficking impacts individuals. And so what we see is very commonly individuals who experience both sex and labor trafficking have something called complex trauma, which in our diagnostic manuals, we don't necessarily have complex trauma as a diagnosis. But what we do have is we do have evidence of individuals who experience developmental traumas looking different than individuals who experience PTSD or a one-time traumatic event. And so some of the unique challenges that I think are very, very, like very night and day different between a familial trafficking survivor and somebody who's maybe experienced pimp control trafficking or a boy who's experienced a market handler, I, I would say the differences include this concept and idea that the person that was supposed to care for them and protect them is also the person who is their exploiter. So to survive, the brain oftentimes has to compartmentalize. So you think of that little three-year-old child who goes to bed at night and is wakened up and taken to a motel and then brought back. That little child literally has to compartmentalize that experience and all of the trauma that took place to be able to wake up the next day and go down the stairs and sit at the breakfast table with the one who did so much harm to her. And so for the very element of the beginnings of a person who's experienced familial trafficking oftentimes holds those two extremes. The extreme of life is somewhat normal and I have to portray this normal and life is absolutely horrific and something that I cannot conceive and that other people struggle to conceive as well. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges that is very different between the different typologies of exploitation. One of the things that we also see with familial trafficking is the overlaps with labor trafficking. And so a lot of times individuals who experience sex trafficking within the family oftentimes end up um, having labor trafficking as part of their experiences. So you think of the 15-year-old um, boy who is um, having to go out and 
um, in, is being trafficked um, by sex by a family member, but then is also going home and is having to care for other brothers and sisters to the degree that he's not able to go to school. And that would be considered labor trafficking. Or you think of the um, farm worker who is living in a trailer um, and is working for an uncle and ends up having to also be sexually available to other people um, who come to the farm. And so we do see a lot of overlaps between the two. And I think that also creates a much harder process of having to go ahead and work through. Not everybody is wanting to take advantage of me and not just take advantage of my time, but take advantage of my body. And so it's also too learning this element of boundaries with the body and learning to engage in society and be present in society. It it takes going ahead and learning to see what brings you joy. And it's so hard because when you grow up in that family environment where so much exploitation is taking place, it's hard to go ahead and not be a puppet and not feel like you have to live life for your life for somebody else. And so that includes the process of learning what makes me smile, what brings me joy, what enables me to feel safe. And so it truly is such a multifaceted process. Thank you, Jessa. I think, um, you know, working in this space and knowing a decent amount about familial trafficking, I still just, you know, you talk about the three-year-old child woken up in the night and I immediately like, I have a three-year-old and to imagine what it would take for me to put him through this. Like I just, I, it stops me in my tracks and it goes beyond the Um, You know, I can sort of understand on an intellectual level, but it is, um, I guess I'm then wondering, like, okay, beyond, like, you know, it's, I, it would take more than money, more than power, prestige for me to do something like that. So I'm wondering if you have any, if you know any statistics about the parents who, you know, are these parents, have they also experienced complex trauma, like by and large or statistically is, do you know anything about that? Like, I'm, it just seems like there would have to be more than some of these factors that you mentioned that would compel a person to do this to their child. Like it, it frankly feels sociopathic. Yeah. So a lot of times, and this is antidotally, we don't have a lot of empirical evidence surrounding the types of individuals who do these crimes. But some of the things that we know from an antidotal perspective is that a lot of times there are personality disorders. A lot of times there's generational trauma um, when trafficking takes place in the family, specifically when it's the prestige within the community or relationships or even within religious communities. Oftentimes there's a generational pattern to that where this is what our family does and this is what little boys do in our family. This is what little girls do in our family. So I, I really think the generational tie just creates this place where individuals within the family just keep perpetrating this trauma onto the next generation. And not everybody who's been hurt hurts other people, but we do see a lot of um, times that if people who've experienced extreme traumas don't begin to face their traumas, then it can create a place where then they can also too become perpetrators. And like I said, I want to make sure people know that that's not always the case. And it is possible after experiencing trauma to move into a place of being a healthy parent, a healthy adult, 
somebody who does not harm other people. And healing is possible. And yet what we see within these generational systems is this element of hurt people within generations can and sometimes do hurt other people within the family. There's a lot of statistics about the prevalence about trafficking as well. So there might not be a lot of like data or research surrounding the types of people who perpetrate um, familial trafficking, but we do have data surrounding the prevalence of it. Um, So in 2016, and I'm going to go through some of these stats a little bit fast, but in 2016, the South Carolina Attorney General's office said a family member was the most commonly reported relationship between a victim and a trafficker. And then in 2017, which this next quote is coming out of the 2021 tip report with the Department of State, um, it says that the International Organization of Migration estimated that 41% of child trafficking experiences are facilitated by family members and or caregivers. And then in 2019, we see that the human trafficking hotline, um, the National Human Trafficking Hotline, indicated that a familial relationship is the second most common form of induction Mm. and recruitment into commercial sex in the U.S. In the same report, the National Human Trafficking Hotline also said that a familial relationship is the second most common form of induction and recruitment into labor trafficking as well. So so all of that paints this picture where the sheltered care, the Samaritan women um, in 2020 did a familial trafficking study. And within this study, they went ahead and they looked at a bunch of cases between 2018 and 2020 that contained 502 minor victims. And out of those 502 minor victims that were represented, 307 were confirmed as familial trafficking cases, which equals 61%. So that is the cases and the information of people who are being recovered. This does not represent all of the hidden cases of familial trafficking victims that are behind closed doors and that are not seen and not recovered. And so with that being said, it gives us this perspective and it paints a picture to help us see that individuals who perpetrate familial trafficking, that they oftentimes um, are either engaging in mental health diagnoses like personality disorders, which could include narcissism, borderline personality disorders. We also see other pathologies um, like sociopathic behaviors taking place. We then also see that individuals who have experienced the trauma of trafficking within a generational family system might also too end up trafficking other people in that family environment. Mm. And I do want people to know that just because one experiences trauma does not mean that they are going to hurt other people or that they can't be a good person or a good parent, a good member of society. And yet within that generational kind of pattern, we do see that that hurt person can pass that hurt down to other people. And so I, I do want people to know that even though you've experienced her things and maybe have a history of trafficking yourself or have been abused, that you can heal and you can move into a place of health and be able to engage with people in a healthy fashion. 
This episode is brought to you by Matrabumi, an ethical gifting company based out of Austin, Texas. Matrabumi's vision is to create a playful, compassionate, kind, and connected world. They use trade as a tool to create positive change by designing and distributing products for ethical living. Matrabumi partners with over a thousand artisans in marginalized communities throughout India to create economic and sustainable living opportunities for artisans and people in the wider community. They aim to break the gender and inequality gap by paving a path to confidence in female artisans. This is done by investing in vocational training, literacy programs, and providing fair wage opportunities to women in the community so they can reach their full potential and become entrepreneurs. At Dressember, we love Matrabumi for creating sustainable pathways for dignified living through creative and beautiful work. Check them out at matrabumi.com. That's M-A-T-R-B-O-O-M-I-E.com for household wares, jewelry, meaningful gifts and accessories, and use code Dressember for 20% off site-wide. I so appreciate that call out. And I think I mean, you're a clear example of that and there and redemption and healing is possible. And um, yeah, love that differentiation. And and I really appreciate you sharing all those statistics because I think trafficking is presented primarily as kidnapping and stranger danger and the imagery of chains and the conjured thoughts of children locked in closets or basements. That's still still what people think of. And this flips that on its head that, no, actually, the majority of children are trafficked by someone very close to them. And so it changes, it should change the way we approach prevention, the way we approach intervention, um, the way we approach aftercare, frankly. It, it should change absolutely every aspect of how um, we in the anti-trafficking space work to to ultimately we hope, stop this this injustice from happening. Um, but it's just a completely different approach when you think about intervention in particular. Mm-hmm. And I can certainly understand why a child would be vulnerable within their family system to whatever a family member uh, might want to do to them. I think understanding the, the ongoing vulnerability is also important for our listeners. So could we talk a little bit about... Um, the the ongoing vulnerability you kind of mentioned it like some of the the developmental trauma that happens during childhood within the family system but um something that's come up in a few of our conversations with guests is re-victimization or recidivism into trafficking and so kind of understanding can you help our listeners understand how a victim a survivor of familial trafficking remains vulnerable to um, being re-traumatized or re-victimized? Yeah. So when an individual who experiences familial trafficking has this concept of all of those boundaries being um, just completely avoided and not being present, it creates a place where that individual um, is vulnerable to other types of people who want to take advantage of them. And so one of the things that we see commonly, and this isn't all the time, but we um, commonly see individuals who've experienced familial trafficking end up, um, as they go through their recovery process or try to escape, they might end up homeless, they might end up um, in a place where they don't have any job skills or don't have a resume um, to go ahead and get a job, let alone know how to do that, because oftentimes there's a lot of neglect within these kind of 
um, families. And so that can put that individual in a place where they end up being re-exploited. And so some individuals might go ahead and be re-exploited through a pimp taking advantage of them. And um, I know that for myself, that is part of my experience where I was in a place where I was desperate for somebody to see me to like somebody to care and so when I was approached by a woman who told me I see that you've been abused and I've been abused too and I'm going to be your friend like that just created a place for me where I'm like oh my gosh somebody wants to be my friend versus me going oh this is not normal and so I think for a lot of individuals who do end up being re-exploited it's oftentimes because they do not have education surrounding what is okay what's normal what is appropriate what's not appropriate and it can create a place where they end up um being very much harmed again. Um, Yeah. Oh, and just as you alluded to before, there's such a lack of safety systems, particularly for children or older teenagers who are transitioning out of living in a family home. If that's the only home you've ever known and that's the only support system you've ever understood, like, I just think, you know, you pointing out homelessness (laughs) as a huge vulnerability is so important to think about. And then this, you know, survivor of familial trafficking has all these added on vulnerabilities of, you know, how am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to pay for housing or try to find housing? And um, like you said, how do I get a job? So just this lack of any foundational safety system and then being able to have a difficulty with trust as they pursue recovery, I can just imagine how difficult of an experience that is. Yes, 100%. And I would say like that ends up being the narrative of a lot of survivors. And that then creates intersections where people who want to make a difference and give hope to familial trafficking survivors can. And I really think those areas where we see those gaps then become the areas where we can create the greatest change. And that is so profound because when we look at those areas that we can create the greatest change, it enables us to then take very tangible action steps. So for instance, that individual who doesn't have any job skills maybe needs to have a place, a safe place that understands hypervigilance, understands complex trauma, understands dissociation or spacing out to begin to go, here's a job and I'm going to train you and pay you a living wage because that is your right. And these are the labor laws and it's your right to be paid a living wage. That then creates so much opportunity for that survivor and then to go, wow, like I can begin to take steps and begin to see myself as a person versus belonging to the person the family member, to the pimp, to the market handler, to the different kinds of people who exploit and traffic, I can begin to be my own person. Mm. I so appreciate your stories of hope and recovery alongside, you know, everything else we're talking about in this conversation, because it it is really, it's really heartbreaking and really gut-wrenching. And so, to understand that we do have these opportunities for great change when we can actually, one, 
listen to survivors and their lived experiences and trust that their expertise is what should lead us in making programmatic decisions for, you know, what services we're going to invest in. Um, I'm just really hopeful that we, we can have more complex trauma-informed practitioners across the board. Um, so thank you for lacing that into this conversation. It's something that I'm super passionate about because I have seen it change lives and I've seen it help individuals move into a place where they can begin to define what their future looks like. And I think so many times, um, at least what I have seen as a common theme is that individuals um, or programs that want to help survivors often have this concept and idea of what they want that program to look like and what they want um, a successful program participant to look like. But the reality is, is that we can't define what success looks for somebody else. We, and that makes, and that makes this job and that makes working with survivors so much harder. But what we can do is we can empower survivors to begin to dream and to begin to set their own goals. And we can help them take steps towards those goals. And that is the pinnacle of change is the empowerment Mm. of those who have experienced this crime. Yeah. And I, I liked these tangible aspects that you noted on about how folks that are providing direct services can understand hypervigilance. They can have an understanding of complex trauma. They can have an understanding of disassociation. What are some other ways that we can be more equipped to support survivors and empower survivors and prevent re-traumatization in that recovery process? Yeah, I think, so this is, these go for all kind, like all typologies of survivors, but I'm going to kind of zero in specifically for that familial trafficking survivor. I think one of the things that we really need to do is we need to be explicit and saying that we believe familial mm. trafficking survivors, because oftentimes, because familial trafficking is so hard to conceptualize, despite the fact that we have statistics that show that familial trafficking is the most common form and typology of trafficking. We need to go ahead and we need to believe individuals who begin to disclose the horrific and sadistic things that they've experienced within their families. And that's so, so, so important. Oftentimes, familial trafficking survivors are silenced by those who perpetrate these crimes. And um, we need to go ahead and create safe spaces for them to feel safe, to go ahead and share. Um, And safe places that also to talk about familial trafficking and the reality of it. Another one is, I believe, celebrating accomplishments and holidays. So when you think about holidays, oftentimes, at least what I have seen in the past 10, 11, 12 years is that during holidays, people who love each other come together. And oftentimes (laughs) it's families Mm. come together. But when you've experienced familial trafficking, um, not only do you lose the only people that you have known in your life who told you that they love you, but that love has equated into such harm and pain. But you also lose having people around during these holidays or during celebrations of accomplishment. I um, remember like my first Christmas um, being free from my exploitation and trafficking and just like 
the sadness and the depression that I felt because walking around and like, I would see people like being together and laughing or having fun. And that was just such a time when trauma got worse during holidays, Mm -hmm. but yet now I have the trauma of also to being all alone. And that is really, really painful. And so I think one of the ways that we can, um, go ahead and support familial trafficking survivors is being present during celebrations or being mm-hmm. present during um, holidays. And that doesn't mean that we have to like go, Oh, I'm going to invite all of the survivors <laughs> in my city to come to my house on Christmas morning. <laughs> um, if you celebrate Christmas, but rather just going ahead and going like, I know that this holiday might be really hard for you. And I just want you to know that I'm here and would love to be present with however that looks for you or however you need that to look this year. I think also too, and this is one of the things I love about Dress Summer, but create educational um, professional development opportunities. And I know that this is a pillar of what you guys are doing. And it's so powerful because once again, um, families oftentimes help um, children with the process of going to school, but with familial trafficking survivors, there is none of that support. There's none of that backing. And so education we see as a primary factor in helping survivors move into a place of economic empowerment and economic stability, which is needed and necessary to prevent future exploitation from happening. And it can also prevent future generations from being harmed in a place of being vulnerable to people who take advantage of them. And so I love how educational opportunities and professional development opportunities is a huge part in helping familial trafficking survivors move into that future that they're defining. And then also too, I like to tell people, even though it might be scary to meet um, or engage with a person who's experienced extreme trauma that you know of, and there's a lot of people walking around that we don't know what their stories are. Um, but I like to encourage people, it's really essential to be yourself. And that takes us being aware of our own wounds to be able to then be present and be able to sit with others who have also experienced wounding. And so that's just, I know that's more abstract, but I think Mm -hmm. that's so vital because to be able to engage with others in a trauma-informed way means that we're treating ourselves with the same kindness and compassion that we would give other people. That feels like a good plug for therapy for everyone. We all need therapy. <laughs> We've all gone oh, through geez. at least small T traumas. Yeah. Being a human being is hard. Well, some of our listeners might remember hearing from you, Jessa, in our advocacy course that we did last summer. Thank you again for being such an incredible part of, of that course. Um, I think it would be um, just really helpful if we could pivot slightly, if you're willing to share um, kind of some of like, you know, I know you ha- you did a whole like half hour or maybe it was an hour long session on it, but if you could share just like a few tips um, for how anti-trafficking advocates can be more trauma-informed. Yeah, I really love talking about the process of being trauma-informed because being trauma-informed is one of those things that we hear and it's kind of like a buzzword and it's like, oh, we need to be trauma-informed. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? And so the way that I conceptualize and um, kind of, it's not so much watering down, but making it more understandable and more relatable is kind of taking this idea and this concept of 
everybody in society has been impacted by trauma in one way or another, whether it's personally, indirectly, or whether it's through people we love and people we know, or within our community and people that are walking around us at the grocery store or in our greater globe and all of the global traumas that happen. And so when we take that perspective, we can go, wow, trauma is a common human experience. And when we have that idea and that concept that trauma is something that happens to all humans, it gives us the need to go, we need to engage with everybody as if they've experienced trauma. So being trauma-informed is seeing that everybody has experienced trauma and I want to engage with everybody around me in a manner that acknowledges that trauma and treats them with kindness and care. And so some of the different ways to go ahead and to be trauma-informed, and this is not going to be necessarily like a complete list, but kind of just a little bit of uh, introduction um, is first to go ahead and to give choices to people and to empower people to go ahead and to create choice for their life. So we work with survivors of exploitation trafficking. What does it look like for them to make choices for themselves versus programs making choices for them? if that makes sense. Or if we're engaging with a child who's been through something hard and it doesn't have to be just sexual abuse or something else that's traumatic. If a child has been through something hard, we could just go, would you like this or this, or would this help or would this help? And that can then create a place where that child feels more in control of themselves. Another one is creating safety. And this is both psychological safety and environmental safety, but being trauma-informed is creating safe spaces around us. And also to creating a safe place within us for us to be able to be with people and for people to feel safe with us. And I don't know about you, Blythe, but I've been with people that I don't feel safe with. And so I think safety is so vital in this process. Another one is collaboration. Yeah. And this is um, something that I believe in. And I believe that collaboration with us as individuals and us as communities and us as organizations or people or us as advocates enables people to go ahead and feel safer with engaging with us because then they know that this is not going to be in situation that's going to create greater isolation. Trauma often happens in isolation. We see domestic violence oftentimes creating isolation. So trauma can continue and that violence can continue. In trafficking situations, we see isolation being utilized as a means of control and coercion within that victim's life. And so collaboration is one way that we can go ahead and be trauma-informed. And then also to trustworthiness, us learning how to be safe places through creating trust with other people. And um, this looks like us having boundaries. Um, this looks like us also too being transparent. And that doesn't mean, transparency does not mean that we go and share every single little detail of our lives with everybody. Rather, transparency looks like what we say is what we truly mean it to say. And we are being transparent in how we communicate and what we're communicating. And um, people know that they can trust us through that transparency. And then that leads us to empowerment and trauma-informed processes and people um, go ahead and seek to empower 
others. And so that is very much creating an atmosphere where people feel validated and where they feel affirmed. And that then takes us back to safety. And so then it all becomes interwoven together. Um, but trauma informed basically means that we engage with people knowing that trauma has intersected their life in one way or another. Mm. Yeah. Such a, such a good, a good list of, of tips for, for me and for, for everyone listening. Um, I really appreciate how thoughtful and, um, practical and strategic you are, Jessa. So thank you for for walking us through those. And I, I totally agree that the term trauma informed is very um it's it's very in vogue right now in the anti-trafficking space. And so I think um really nailing down a solid agreed upon definition is um would be a great next step in this space. <laughs> but but I I would elect you, I would elect you to to begin that conversation too. Or you just have such a strong start. Thank you. Yes, Jessa, you've lent so much of your expertise already, and I want to create space for you in this final question. Um, what is one thing you wish people knew about human trafficking or even about um, familial trafficking? Yeah, I've been thinking about this question, and the one thing that I really want people to know about human trafficking is that even though one has experienced exploitation trafficking, that they are human and that I'm human and that it is possible for us to move into a place where we are professionals, where we are able to hold jobs, where we are able to have beautiful families. And I think so many times people see survivors as broken and see individuals who've experienced trauma as broken. And I like to say that, yes, I've experienced hard things and that does not define me. I am so much more than what has happened. And so I guess, yeah, I just want people to know that healing is possible. Such a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Jessa. Thank you for your time and your energy and your expertise. Thank you. It has been such a delight to be with you, my friends. Oh, same. Thank you, Jessa. We love having you in the Dress Umber community. Thank you. And I so greatly enjoy being part of it too. Thanks for listening to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dress Umber podcast. We are all needed in the fight against human trafficking. And Dress Umber is here to equip and empower you to advocate for the dignity of all people. We host a style challenge every December where people pledge to wear a dress or tie for 31 days. The style challenge provides a fun, impactful way for even the busiest person to engage in this important issue. And it's proven to be a powerful way to raise awareness and vital funding for anti-trafficking work. Since 2013, thousands of advocates have raised roughly $16 million to fight human trafficking from every angle around the world. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Dressember Style Challenge, and we need your advocacy to help make our biggest impact to date. You can join the Dressember community in the fight against human trafficking at dressember.org slash fundraise or learn more at dressember.org slash how it works. And remember, it's bigger than a dress. Dress